Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 46th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Zach Schildhorn, a partner at Lux Capital in New York City. Lux Capital has $1.4 billion under management and is currently investing from its $400 million fifth fund. Zach has led the firm's investments in companies like Shapeways, Soul Systems, and Moment. His most recent investment is in a company called Latch, a New York tech company that is modernizing buildings by digitizing physical keys with a smart access system. Oh, and one fun fact that you should know about Zach is that he has an interesting hobby as a reef aquarist where his work is actually on display at their offices with a 180-gallon reef aquarium. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like his interest in technology at a young age and starting his own company, how he sought out and landed an opportunity in venture capital while he was still at Cornell, what his career path has looked like in venture and how he worked his way up through the ranks to a partner at the firm, his interest in making investments that bridge the intersection between digital and physical worlds, lots of great advice for entrepreneurs in terms of fundraising and hiring, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. This is my fourth interview since we've expanded our podcast to New York City. I'm really excited as we have several amazing interviews lined up with many of the top entrepreneurs and investors in the New York ecosystem. So stay tuned. We'll have new episodes for New York City every two weeks. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Zach. Zach, thanks for taking the time. Great to have you. <laughs> so I was excited to come into your office because I saw from your website, you uh, in your bio, there's discussion about your interest in fish and aquarium building. And I saw there was a live stream to the actual aquarium in the Lux office. So talk to me about your interest there. Uh, I, I've been a longtime reef aquarist, which is the keeping of not just fish, but live corals and all sorts of other creatures. It's a whole little ecosystem. And uh, I'm really lucky that my colleagues didn't hate me when I decided to bring a 180-gallon tank to the office. Uh, for perspective, the tank's big enough when empty for me to fit inside. It's, wow. a, it's a pretty big aquarium, uh, but it's very colorful and beautiful and relaxing and uh, a really great addition to the work environment. But I actually find it has a lot of metaphors for venture. You know, there are, there are many paths to success. Um, there are also many ways to fail. And you learn a lot more from your failures in this hobby than you do from your successes. Uh, it's, it's a hobby that rewards patience, consistent effort, and uh, planning. And uh, I think a lot of that holds true for, for venture, too. So it's, uh, it's kind of fun in that regard. So not only is it beautiful... But you showed me kind of, you know, under the covers, under the hood of what operates this tank. And it was automated systems, a lot of mechanics. So, like, it, it was just impressive. Like, it's not just a fish tank. There's a lot under the under the hood. Yeah, well, it's a whole life support system for a very sensitive ecosystem. And you got to make sure that things stay stable. Uh, my, my partner, Josh, says that uh, in startups, failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. Basically, the unknown unknowns are what kill you. And uh, it's the same here. You know, it's, it's that one event that happens that you weren't expecting, like a leak that you weren't able to catch in time uh, or some random switch in your system uh, inadvertently going off. I had, a, I had one situation once where I 
had this is really nerdy. I'm very sorry to dive in here, but uh, I had snails actually spawn unexpectedly in my tank. And when the snails are so small, they can the larvae or whatever can fit through all the filters. Mm-hmm. And I had a tiny snail that grew inside of one of the uh, float switches that control the water addition to the tank. And I came to the office one day, and it was nearly overflowing because this baby snail had stuck a switch. And you know that was an unknown unknown. And now I have redundant switches, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you learn, and you obviously made the improvements to uh, hopefully avoid catastrophe yeah. in the future. Always learning. <laughs> All right, let's go way back. So where did you grow up? I grew up outside uh, Philly uh, in the suburbs, a suburb called Lower Marion. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Um, so one of the things that I get to do when I'm preparing for a podcast like this is I get to stalk someone online. And I noticed from your bio, you were you know linked to a personal page that showed a link to your Vimeo page, which had some videos of which there was a best man speech from your brother. So I listened to that and he, he, he did a great job by the way, but he, he talked about, um, one of your first loves was computers and he referenced in 1995, a Dell latitude XPS computer. So let's talk about, you know, I thought that was you know relevant as far as what you're doing today. So what was your, what kind of brought you to technology? I'm laughing and blushing because my brother completely destroyed me at my wedding with the best man speech. It was amazing. Uh, but he made fun of me that, you know, he was going to talk about my three prior loves and you know they were inanimate objects that moved towards animate objects which were my fish tank and then ultimately my wife uh and it was it was really funny but um I got into computers at a young age. Uh, I think we had our first computer was a DOS machine and was playing video games on it and learned to, to do some things on it. And it was just this incredible tool. And just naturally experimenting and playing with computers, I, I happened to be good at them uh, or good at working with them. And I, I guess that was my first entrepreneurial endeavor. In, in high school, I ended up starting a computer business, which was basically going around servicing all my parents' friends' machines who needed to set up wireless networks or had issues installing or uninstalling software or had buggy stuff going on. And uh, it was great because instead of having to caddy at a golf course or work at a scoop shop for, you know, 10 bucks an hour, I I could charge a lot more and work a lot less and uh, have some spare cash in my pocket. And probably controlled your own hours, and yeah, I mean, it was your own business. Yeah, and I got to learn a lot too. Uh, one of my biggest clients ended up being a local chain of small beauty stores. Uh, it was like a salon and a high-end beauty supply, and they had this website that was just god awful. I mean, it was it was a list of products with an email form to submit your credit card. It was totally insecure. It was a terrible user experience, and I had actually never built a website before, but. I looked at that and I said, I can do better than that. I can figure out how to do better. And so I sort of pitched a plan to this founder of this company uh, who ended up becoming a very close friend. And uh, the plan basically envisioned what a site could look like, how we'd go about doing it, how we'd figure out billing. And I basically got paid to learn how to code and taught myself PHP, MySQL, ended up hiring someone a few years my senior uh, who had some experience to help me set up the back end and built an entire website from scratch that had full e-commerce integration admin, shipping, uh, integration, payments, payment gateway, uh, had over 100,000 products. I ended up netting uh, for the business over a million dollars in his first two years, which wow. was which was pretty cool. Uh, so I was very proud and of that. This was in and, high school? Yeah, this was in high school. And, and this uh, was before everything kind of like fit together. Oh, this was way before you had like Shopify or Magento any of that. It was like authorized.net and, <laughs> you know, I you know you had to build everything yeah, from scratch. payment gateways and like that. Yeah, that, well, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so, uh, and then for school, you went to, to Cornell, which uh, you, you had a very unique 
uh, learning experience there where it's, it sounds like you built your own curriculum? Yeah, well, I say the best decision I ever made was getting off the beaten path of the majors that everybody else was pursuing. And it wasn't intentional. I, I came in to study material science, which I thought was a really interesting field. Uh, at the time, nanotechnology was a very exciting area. And material science is, is basically the study uh, at the nanoscale of materials. And I um, realized my sophomore year I was not going to be a material scientist. Uh, I did not find the idea of working behind a lab bench exciting. And a lot of other engineers would just end up going a generic route of consulting or banking or something like that, which didn't really appeal to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted something at the intersection of technology and business, which I found interesting. And so I sort of created uh, my own curriculum. And at Cornell, I think the motto is any person, any study. And it's totally true. You can do whatever you want. You just have to be willing to do the work to make it happen because Mm -hmm. you're not going to be sailing smoothly through the system at that point. So I had to put in some effort to get a advisor signed up, designed my own curriculum, but it was by far the best decision I ever made. And you coupled that with uh, entrepreneurship too, right? Yeah. So the major was uh, material science and business entrepreneurship, which is just something I made up. But it was a combination of a whole bunch of business and entrepreneurial related classes that I actually took in the business school uh, and uh, undergrad material science curriculum that focused a little more on breadth as opposed to such depth. And, and you were part of actually participating in the entrepreneurship program where uh, you were a finalist in one of the competitions. Like, what, what was the idea for that? Yeah, so there was this. There's this class of materials called aerogels, which are these incredible materials. I don't know if you've ever seen a video of like a silica aerogel. They're you know used by NASA, but it's like 99.8% air and this lattice structure of silicon uh, or silica that uh, basically creates this incredible insulator. So the amazing photo that you might have seen is someone holding their hand over you know half an inch of a material with a Bunsen burner underneath and you know it not getting hot. So these are just materials with incredible properties, particularly around insulation. And I had read about this professor at Case Western Reserve University who had, and sorry, one step back, the problem with aerogels, they were insanely expensive and really difficult to manufacture. So these incredible materials, inaccessible to anyone except NASA, pretty much. And I read about this professor at Case Western who came up to make, came up with a way to make aerogels from clay. Uh, which is dirt, basically. And so he had figured out how to turn uh, dirt into aerogel through a really interesting freeze-drying process. And I had reached out to him and, and gone to actually visit him and spend time together, and I was fascinated by this idea. And uh, the concept that we pitched was taking these very inexpensive aerogels and putting them into a high-performance clothing brand. So you could have incredibly high-performance insulating garments uh, with a very low-cost insulating material. Uh, the only problem ended up being that uh, it crumbled when it got wet. <laughs> so that was part of the, the technology plan for, for what we had to go engineer. How did you get into venture, though? Because it's not like you went on to investment banking or, you know, there's different career paths of how people get into venture entrepreneurship. Frankly, I got really lucky. Okay. I mean, I, I had sort of established this interest area, this intersection of business and material science, and I stumbled across this relatively unknown venture firm at the time called Lux. And I, I didn't know that much about venture capital, but the intersection was exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, w- it was this idea that you could focus on uh, finding these very early stage technology companies and investing money, you know, taking equity, sitting on the board, helping advise these companies, helping them grow, helping them recruit and potentially one day being really successful and maybe changing the world in the process. And, and that was really appealing. 
And so it turned out that one of the founders of Lux was a Cornellian, Josh Wolf, and uh, they were looking for unpaid interns for the summer. And I applied about six times, uh, didn't hear anything back, finally got on the phone with somebody there and uh, convinced them to, to hire me uh, as a summer associate. Wow, okay. So you come straight, you know, basically out of school. So what's the learning curve like getting into venture relatively, you know, straight out of school? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, Lux was a pretty young firm at the time. Uh, we were really just getting off the ground in the sense that we were pulling together a first institutional fund, uh, very focused on this particular area of nanotechnology, which uh, was my background, so it was a really good natural fit. Uh, I, I liked the people. I guess they liked me. Uh, I was really impressed by the vision and ambition of the founders and the team. And, uh, you know, I... I just said to myself, I, I need to find a way to be valuable here. Um, yeah, I, I knew I wasn't going to be leading investments as an 18-year-old. And so uh, I ended up using some of those computer skills uh, and design and creative skills that uh, I had developed independently. And that was much more valuable than my material science training, to be honest. Uh, and I ended up sort of taking on independently a bunch of projects internally related from IT and IR to uh, marketing and operations. And that was sort of my start and how I proved value to, to the rest of the partners and uh, over time established a role for myself. And then like, so were you here in New York, just, you know, just starting to become part of the community and just getting out there? Like, how do you like build up your own, like, I guess, brand that you're part of this ecosystem that leads to introductions to entrepreneurs? Uh, well, you know, the New York community is a lot smaller than Silicon Valley community, particularly back in 2000, uh, pre-2008 time period. And you would go to events. I mean, there was a New York tech meetup. There were all sorts of different technology events. And I would go to events and meet people. And actually, some of my closest friends uh, in New York are people that I met at some of those events early on. Uh, but that's how you start developing relationships. And you meet people starting companies. You meet other uh, young, uh, young interns or associates at uh, other venture firms. And you start building those relationships. And, and it's funny because I remember um, really early on, like there were very few very young people who were in venture, particularly in the New York or East Coast area. Uh, one of them was Brett Burson at First Round, who was interning out of NYU at this little firm called First Round and has gone on to have incredible success. Uh, you know, there's a, another young guy, Jesse Beirudi, who is an intern uh, at IA or, or was working at a very young age at IA Ventures and uh, is now a partner there and actually a few floors above us. So there's, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of a community of young people who started early in venture and have managed to stick around. And what was the career path like? I mean, Lux has you know, grown and there's uh, how many funds? Like what fund are you investing yeah, in? Yeah, we're on Lux Ventures 5. It's a $400 million fund. Got it. Okay. So over the growth of the firm, like what different roles did you play to the point where now you're... Yeah, so I, I started as unpaid intern and <laughs> actually spent a second summer as an intern because did a did an extra year at school. Okay. Um, and then uh, became an associate and then I think a senior associate and okay. then uh, a vice president, director of operations and ultimately a partner. I mean, the transition to partner is really one of transitioning into an investing role. Uh, that is where, you know, the great value for an investing firm is. It's, it's on the investing side. You know, I, I say there, there are many ways to add value to a venture firm, actually. It's, um, you know, there's... Uh, sourcing investments, due diligence, transacting, uh, operations, uh, portfolio company support, fundraising. And you can add value in all of those areas. And there are partners that specialize in, in just one thing, like fundraising and IR. You know, we have a partner that does that. But, but at the end of the day, most of the value um, beyond that is, is really in, in investing. And so I wanted to be involved in investing. And 
Uh, I'm lucky that Lux is a firm that prides itself on being really different and focusing on areas where others aren't focused. And I got really interested in this space called 3D printing that nobody was really paying attention to at the time. There had maybe been a few venture investments, uh, early first investment in a company called MakerBot, which was doing desktop 3D printers. Uh, But but a few companies just starting to bubble up, uh, not a lot of chatter about the space. But I saw what was happening in the technology, uh, developed a thesis, uh, saw what was happening in the market, and believed that we should make bets in that space. And uh, it's gone on to be a, a really productive area for us as a firm. Like just kind of like going through that evolution. Like at what point did you, as a, an associate or senior associate, start to bring uh, deals into the firm, or uh, you know you had conviction that this was something that was real, and maybe or maybe not they didn't make an investment, the partnership. But you know, at what point? Were you comfortable to be like, hey, we need to place a bet on this company? Yeah, so that was, I think our first investment, uh, which was Shapeways in 3D printing, was in 2012. And that was the first investment that I helped to lead. Um, I had helped source another investment called Matterport, which is also in the 3D space. Uh, It's really 3D scanning of interiors uh, around that same time. But... um, yeah, I, I started in 2008, so it was four years later. So oh, it took okay. me a while to sort of establish myself internally and then get to the point where I was really confident that we should be investing in this area. And I think I spent almost a year looking at the sector before we wrote that check. And so it was a, it was a process of convincing my partners internally that this was an area that was worth spending time on, uh, sort of searching the world for all the opportunities that we could potentially invest in and deciding that, you know, this was the one. So that's a great segue of, so you have this thesis where you're like, okay, I'm going to focus on this emerging area, right? So how did you find, you know, these entrepreneurs that also had the same I, idealistic state that this is going to be an industry. Well, that was the easy part. I mean, there weren't so many of them, <laughs> okay. right? You, you could you could so go pre- you could you could go talk to pretty much any company or or professor uh, that was doing stuff in three D printing because right. it, it wasn't a very popular area at the time. There were okay. a few companies. Uh, I remember actually there were there were two professors, uh, Hod Lipson at Cornell and Adrian Boyer, uh, who was a professor in the UK, and they had the catalyst for all of this. Really, um, they had sort of open sourced these projects uh, called the RepRep project, which was for a very low-cost desktop 3D printer. And that was the basis of the first MakerBot. And, uh, you know, we saw that happening, and it was this sort of this uh, spark that was lit for the industry where all of a sudden these machines that used to be ten dollars or $12,000 made by, you know, a few companies could be had for a few thousand dollars, and everybody started experimenting with it. And you could see this moment where people understood the power of this idea. And the idea is that, you know, you could make anything. And that's really far-fetched and actually far from reality is what we learned. And in fact, desktop machines were little more than robotic hot glue guns and we eschewed them. Um, But um, this idea that this technology was transitioning from uh, making prototypes to making really real products was a big deal. Because historically, when you wanted to make something, you know, it was a really long journey. And you had to go through all sorts of steps to get something manufactured, carry inventory, you know, ship it around the world. The idea that you could just go from a digital file to a physical product is a really big idea. On top of the fact that 3D printing adds all sorts of benefits like unlimited geometric complexity or customization for free. And at the time, it was sort of esoteric and expensive, but we could see that this catalyst of low-cost machines and the rise of really inexpensive and really capable design software uh, and rising competition and attention would eventually drive this to the place where uh, 3D printing or additive manufacturing was uh, a really um, practical means of production in certain industries and one that would be very powerful. 
And where are you focused on today? I, I assume it's still in this world of 3D printing, but what else? Like, Where's your concentrated focus at Lux today? I happen to be really interested in this intersection between the digital and the physical worlds. Um, so that encompasses really a lot of different areas and companies. Uh, but I find it fascinating, uh, you know, this idea that the, the powerful computer network technologies that we've developed over decades can be applied to the actual physical world uh, yields a lot of potential opportunity. And there are many, many areas where I still feel uh, are untouched. Yeah, I mean, there's so much emerging technology. Now, what I think is a whole different level as far as your concentration is the fact that most of your investments includes a physical object, a piece of hardware. So, I mean, when you're building software, there's obviously complexity and difficulty of building that and making an investment in that. But when there's a physical object that needs to be manufactured, like, like how do you figure that out or how do you work with an entrepreneur? Like, what's what goes into that type of investment? I mean, the first thing is really the team. I, it's, it's difficult to invest in a team that doesn't know what they're doing in the hardware space. So I, I look for people who have built things before uh, or at least have people around the table who have built things before. Um, and... When investing in companies that are focused on hardware, it's, it's not really a focus on hardware. Hardware is an enabler for a broader aspect of the business. And, you know, in the case of a company like Moment, which is in the mobile photography space, like they're building a brand around mobile photography. Um, the, the hardware is the initial enabler. It's the initial product that gets people hooked on that brand. In the case of Latch, which I think we'll talk about a little more, um, you know, that, that is an enabler for a much bigger business opportunity around access control uh, and building management. And that's something that you need the hardware to have, but the hardware is not the business model. Uh, so Latch, your, it was your most recent investment, correct? And so you led the round. Um, how did you get connected initially with the founders from, from Latch? And what, what did that process look like? And obviously talk more about what they do. Yeah, I was a mentor for uh, Accelerator Program here in New York that was focused on uh, connected hardware, actually. And we, uh, I actually never met the team during the course of the mentorship, which was unusual. Um, they were being very selective and secretive with who they were meeting with. But shortly after the program was done, the program director reached out and said, hey, Zach, really think you should meet this team. And I had actually spent some time in the digital access space. I'd looked at a few startups uh, that were a little more consumer-focused, uh, had spent time with a company that was in the um, uh, mechanical key space, of all things. And... We had never really pulled the trigger on anything, but had some knowledge and experience. And the second I met Luke and the team, uh, I knew that it was a special opportunity. Uh, this was very focused on enterprise versus consumer and some real unique problems within enterprise, which were that uh, you have a rise of delivery and on-demand services that, f especially for multi-tenant buildings, are causing a lot of logistical challenges. Uh, a lot of buildings don't have doormen, couldn't accept packages, tenants were upset. Uh, you have people trying to get in and out of buildings, tons of keys getting copied. You have turnover of rentals. And it's just a pain for a building manager. And so they were really focused on this customer, which is not the consumer, but the building manager who had you know a whole bunch of doors to manage and not a good solution to do so. And they had this vision for a future where you know a, an access system enabled by those hardware products could really transform everything from you know unattended delivery to how on-demand services were handled to how ultimately like rentals and building management could take place. And uh, it's been really exciting to watch that company go from idea to shipping product to really being uh, a, a fast leader in the industry and having uh, raising a lot of money and uh, having ever-expanding ambitions. It, it, were they always focused on the enterprise or was it some companies pivot, right? They start out consumer like, let's 
you know, evolve. From the moment we met the company, it was enterprise focused. Wow. And, and that really distinguished them because totally. uh, the rest of the industry, I mean, people often compared it to something like uh, August, um, but, but they uh, they never even viewed that as a competitor. It was it was a completely different industry. And, and the challenge with consumer is you got to build up a lot of inventory. You have to spend a lot on marketing and support. You're you know, selling individual doors, uh, servicing individual doors. You have issues with installation and all sorts of stuff. In the enterprise channel, you know, you sell one customer who can be responsible for deploying thousands of units. Uh, you're able to extract much higher upfront value for the hardware. Um, you can sell a recurring software with 100% attachment because it's a required part of the system. You can sign a contract and collect cash six months before you actually have to deliver because you're on a building development cycle. And so you don't have to worry about the cash flow constraints of building inventory ahead of a holiday season or something like that. It's just a dramatically better business. And obviously the barriers to entry for others to copy and fast follow are incredibly difficult. It's quite high because it's not just about making one product. Uh, yeah. Latch has to make multiple products that can accommodate every entry type within a building. Uh, they also have to have a software system that works uniquely across all of those products in an environment, by the way, where you don't have consistent access to Wi-Fi. Uh, so how do you build a connected device that isn't always connected? Mm -hmm. And it's a really unique challenge that they solved, especially one that needs to be updated with new firmware that needs to be updated with new access codes. Uh, how does that take place? And so they've been very clever in how they've designed the system to operate in this really specific environments of multifamily dwellings and eventually other areas as well. Looking you know, broader outside of Latch, um, how do you advise founders when it comes to manufacturing of you know, physical products or hardware? I mean, honestly, like our portfolio contains a lot of founders who have done it before. And the best thing you can possibly do is talk to someone who has the experience. Right. Uh, you know, you, you want to be working with people who have done it before and learn from their mistakes mm -hmm. and uh, learn what not to do in particular. Uh, and that's the best advice we can give is go talk to Mark at Moment. Go talk right. to Luke at Latch. You know, go talk to all these founders who have done this before. Right. Got it. How does someone get on your radar? If, if I'm an entrepreneur, I've got an idea. Like, How, how do I you know, get time with you? Reach out, send me an email, make it interesting. I mean, tell me about something you're doing that nobody else is focused on. One of the things we love, and I love in particular, are, are areas that people aren't paying attention to. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've had theses around tattoo technologies and uh, animal behavior and communications. Uh, right now, I'm looking at uh, a company in skin pigment control. So, really out there ideas, I really like. Uh, we, we like areas where there's not a lot of competition, where cost of capital is high, where, you know, cost of talent is high, and where you can build uh, an end of one company. And so once an entrepreneur gets, you know, a, a meeting with you, like, what do you like to get out of the first meeting? Like, what's that typically look like in, in terms of the information you're trying to, to gather? Honestly, I look for a level of sophistication around what they're building and why. And if I think I have better answers than them, I know it's not the right opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, frankly, I look for people that I think are way smarter than me in whatever area they're focused on. And you can usually identify pretty quickly when somebody has that. I mean, they're just insanely knowledgeable. They know everything about all of their competitors. They have a really clear idea of how they need to get to market and distribution channels. Um, they might be, there might be questions, as there always are, about how they you know, take one tactical step or get from A to B or you know, some people they need to recruit. But they have a very clear sense of what they're doing and why and why they think it's going to be valuable. And a nuanced view, not a pie-in-the-sky high-level view, but a nuanced view of some of the things it's going to take to get there. And is there a particular stage that you like to concentrate on when 
in terms of your investment? Yeah, I mean, we're Series A focused investors. Right. Um, so usually companies uh, can be pre-product launch or right around product launch, uh, but raising five to ten million dollar financings, where we're you know leading those financings, writing five to ten million dollar checks, sitting on boards, and and really helping the company from there. Are there common mistakes or pitfalls that you see entrepreneurs make? Um, you know, whether it's fundraising or just you know the process of building a company. There are a lot of mistakes that entrepreneurs make. Uh, building companies is hard, and you know, you're up against the ever-evolving landscape of uncertainty. And so you have to make a lot of decisions in the face of that uncertainty, and, and that's just hard. And not all the decisions are always going to be right. But you know, I, I think one thing that can be really challenging is, especially in an environment today where it's very easy to raise capital, is to spend very quickly before you're sure that your business is going to work. And uh, it's appealing to just go raise ever larger rounds of financing and see that burn keep rising as you grow the company. Uh, but that can kill you really fast if things start to change or if you don't figure out your business model early. So keep the burn, burn rate as low as possible. I'd say just be wise with how you're spending and why mm -hmm. uh, and make sure that you don't get too far ahead of yourself. What, what advice would you give to founders that um – you're just in the early stages of building out their team, like the you know recruiting. You want to hire people who you think are way better than you. I mean, the people that you surround yourself with, particularly the earliest stages, are going to define the future of your company. Uh, and by the way, not just performance, but culture. Mm -hmm. You know, these are people that you have to feel comfortable with, who you want to go to battle with every day, that you believe in, that you think are going to set the right example for people that they're going to hire and as the rest of the organization grows. And so that's a hard thing to do. And that's it's about relationship building. Um, a lot of people make decisions not just about hires but about investors they're going to take on mm -hmm. uh, without spending the time to really get to know them. And I think, I think that's a mistake. And uh, it's something I try to do with a lot of the founders that I want to work with is spend time getting to know each other. Yeah. No, it's – whether it's, like you said, the investors that you're working with or employees, you think about how much time you spend, right? It's, uh, you know, similar to, you know, getting married. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And people say a venture relationship is actually lasts a lot longer than most modern marriages, sadly. Uh, but, you know, it could be a decade plus relationship and you want to make sure you know who you're getting in bed with, so to speak. Yeah. Well, what um, advice would you give to someone who is, who is interested in actually getting a job in venture capital? You know, I joke there are four or five ways into venture. There's entrepreneurism, mm -hmm. journalism, nepotism, internship, <laughs> <laughs> and fundraising, I guess. But, um, you know, there's no one sure path. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be able to get a foot in the door somehow. And that means making yourself, first of all, putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. And secondly, making yourself different. Because there are a lot of smart people with great resumes that want to go work at the same firm you want to work at. Right. Um, you have to make yourself stand out somehow. And that can be, you know, finding an area that they might have an interest in that you become really knowledgeable in and impress them with that knowledge and taking on a project for free that you want to do and then just impressing them. Uh, you know, it could be a really lucky circumstance where, you know, you happen to build a relationship with a partner and the timing's right for them to bring somebody on board. Uh, I've heard some great stories about uh, what folks have people done to get roles in venture, but all of them are different, and all of them involve both some luck and uh, being prepared, like having that opportunity and seizing it. 
uh, with with some unique insight or approach that that impressed the person that was making a decision on whether to bring someone on board. Well, I think you're you know we talked about your background earlier, and that is a good example of you know you're persistent, right? You you followed up multiple times, uh, didn't hear anything back, but finally got that opportunity, and you sought out a firm that could leverage the deep domain experience that you had. So you know you weren't just trying to get into any random venture capital firm. It was like you know my expertise heavily applies to what you guys are doing. So, um, 10 years of being in the New York tech ecosystem, uh, how has it evolved and like what, what, what things are you excited about now? It's amazing. I mean, this is an ecosystem that has grown so dramatically over the last 10 years, and you have a lot of firms that are moving here or expanding and putting offices here. Uh, you have a much more established startup community. There's been some big successes. There are companies that have you know, gone on to be acquired for very high prices. There are companies that have gone public, and you have this diaspora of talent that's come out of these companies that are ready to start their next or join their next. So it's a really vibrant ecosystem right now. And it's it's not as big as Silicon Valley, which I really like. Uh, it's, it's an environment that's supportive. Uh, it's an environment where you have some really interesting companies being founded. And also uh, with the input and diversity of an employee base and an investor base that is in touch with what else is happening in New York. It's not all tech all the time, which which is great. Now, if someone's new to the tech ecosystem, what advice would you give to that person as far as you know getting involved? You know, not a founder, just somebody that's like, or even someone that's transitioning from maybe you know Wall Street to the tech industry. Like, what advice would you give to people that are trying to make that switch or new to the area? <clears throat> find something to focus on. I mean, find an area you're excited about. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be excited about startups generally is very broad. There's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Find an area that you feel really passionate about and you feel you can apply your skills uniquely, yeah. and then go dominate that area. Go find everyone you can who's doing something there. Investors, startups, researchers, academics, students, and make yourself known in that community and something will fall out of it. I mean, you you will find opportunity that way. I think the biggest mistake people make is just saying, I want to get into venture. I want to get into startups, uh, which is fine as a start. But well, what do you want to do in venture and what do you want to do in startups and why? Mm-hmm. And having that focus, I think, allows people to just find the right opportunity. Yeah. Focus and take action. Take yeah. control of the situation. Get out there. Meet people. Well, Zach, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing all your words of wisdom. This, is, uh, this was very helpful. Thank you for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.